Just like podcasts, newsletters are a great way to learn more about history. And that's why I created the History Weekly Newsletter to round up all the best history podcast episodes of the week and break them down just for you. And as a little bonus, I outline a major historical event that occurred each day that week in history. So consisting of four sections, I list major historical events for the week along with accompanying photographs, all the history podcast episodes I listened to, along with their cover art and links, the three best episodes that I listened to, ranked and analyzed, and I finish with a guest recommendation. So if you're looking for a new newsletter to follow and learn even more history, follow the link in the show notes or enter your email at historyweekly.eo.page slash landing. And now, back to the show. It's the early morning hours of Sunday, October 30th, 1859. John Brown has a hot cup of coffee on his desk as he pulls out some of the letters that he's received. While incarcerated, John has gotten letters from many people, but there's one in particular that makes him raise his eyebrows when he hears the name, Mahala Doyle, the wife of James Doyle and mother of two of his children, whom he helped to kill back in Pottawatomie three years earlier. When she heard that John was on death row, awaiting execution, she decided to express her bitterness and that she was, quote, gratified to hear that you were stopped in your fiendish career, end quote. As John gets to the end of the letter, he begins reflecting on everything that has led to this point and how his legacy will be perceived long after he is gone. This is the story of John Brown, and you're listening to To Be a Rebel. This is To Be a Rebel, the podcast that takes you through the lives of real rebels throughout history that have defied unjust authority and stood up for themselves and their beliefs, at times costing them their lives or their reputations, and sometimes both. This is the last of a three-part series on John Brown, the abolitionist icon that orchestrated the Pottawatomie Massacre and led the raid on Harper's Ferry. This episode will focus on the aftermath of these events, his day in court, and how he's been perceived over the years. If you haven't yet listened to parts one or two, I'd recommend doing so now to familiarize yourself with the chain of events. Well, howdy there, 2B Rebel fans. I know how much you all love your history, so I thought I'd tell you about another show that I myself enjoy, called The Wild West Extravaganza. The host, Josh, he has a real knack and good voice for storytelling. He explores all the rowdy characters, crazy battles, and major events from the American history period known as the Wild Wild West. So that includes Native American tribes and chiefs, cowboys, outlaws, bandits, sheriffs, you name it, he covers it all. And don't worry, they feature plenty of rebels too. And just like me, Josh strives to be as historically accurate as possible, and he's built a large community to hold him accountable to that. So if you want to learn more about this fascinating part of American history, Search for the Wild West Extravaganza wherever you're listening now, or hit the link in the show notes. And now, back to the show. It did not take long after Brown was caught for his execution to take place. In the span of less than a month and a half, Brown would walk the gallows and give his last words. This period would seem an eternity to him, however, as he was ready to give up his life for the cause. 
It did not help that he was still recovering from wounds sustained during his capture as well. In fact, he would enter the courtroom in a cot, something actually typical for this era. Being allowed to lay down in between his dispositions was something not uncanny for the time, though we laugh at it now. Most of his time in jail consisted of reading and writing letters, meeting with the few friends and family he had left, and recovering from his wounds. Being the calm and kind gentleman that he was, the jail staff were cordial to him and allowed him the privileges of visitors and mail frequently. Several of his confidants that wrote letters or came to visit attempted to persuade him to escape, even offering up conspiracies of militias to rescue and bust him out. But he was very adamant about giving up his life for the cause. He was also growing old, thinking of the difficulties of being on the run again, this time having an entire nation after him. This combination did not make it worth it for him to pursue. On this same note, this conviction helped him to develop rapport with his jailer, Captain Avis. Avis would even host him and Mary for dinner in his apartment the day before execution. John developed a fondness for his cellmate as well, Aaron Stevens. As the news came out of what had happened at Harper's Ferry, people of all sides rushed to judgment and opinion was split. Many northern abolitionists entrenched in their positions even further, feeling emboldened and celebrating the event as a victory for their cause. Others who had not yet taken up a side were turned away from it, not wanting to condone violence regardless of the cause. And the southerners, as per usual, were in a state of frenzy. Only this time, instead of responding with fear, they responded with anger. Tensions continued to flare leading up to John's sentencing on November 2nd. It's Wednesday, October 26, 1859, in the town of Charlestown, Virginia. Governor Henry Wise has converted the small town into a virtual military camp with top-notch security. Since John Brown's capture, there have been various threats fielded by law enforcement and conspiracies to rescue Brown, so everyone is on high alert. After the respective parties convene at the courthouse to address the judge and agree to general terms, they come back the next day for the official start of the trial. The case of Virginia versus John Brown is getting ready to be adjourned. John has been ushered in and waits on his cot as Judge Andrew Parker begins the trial. Before getting into the main arguments though, there are two motions that John's defense processes. On his opposition to the insanity plea, John had this to say, I look upon it as a miserable artifice and pretext of those who ought to take a different course in regard to me. Insane persons, so as my experience goes, have but little ability to judge of their own sanity. And if I am insane, of course I should think I know more than all the rest of the world. But I do not think so. I am perfectly unconscious of insanity, and I reject, so far as I am capable, any attempt to interfere in my behalf on that score. Additionally, John requested a delay on the trial, as he was still recovering from his wounds. This would be denied, however, and the case proceeded. Many historians over the years have posited the cruelty of this as he was unable to present his best case of defense in this condition. After all, the authorities had to carry him from his cot, day in and day out from his jail to the courtroom, and back. As things came to a close, he was convicted of treason, murder, and conspiring with slaves to rebel. His sentence was given out on November 2nd, but prior to receiving it, he gave one last speech. I have, may it please the court, a few words to say. In the first place, 
I deny everything but what I have all along admitted, the design on my part to free the slaves. I intended certainly to have made a clean thing of that matter, as I did last winter when I went into Missouri and there took slaves without the snapping of a gun on either side, moved them through the country, and finally left them in Canada. I designed to have done the same thing again on a larger scale. That was all I intended. I never did intend murder, or treason, or the destruction of property, or to excite or incite slaves to rebellion or to make insurrection. I have another objection, and that is, it is unjust that I should suffer such a penalty. Had I interfered in the manner which I admit, and which I admit has been fairly proved, for I admire the truthfulness and candor of the greater portion of the witnesses who have testified in this case, had I so interfered in behalf of the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the so-called great, or in behalf of any of their friends, either father, mother, brother, sister, wife, or children, or any of that class, and suffered and sacrificed what I have in this interference, it would have been all right. And every man in this court would have deemed it an act worthy of reward rather than punishment. Either father, mother, brother, sister, wife, or children, or any of that class, and suffered and sacrificed what I have in this interference, it would have been all right. And every man in this court would have deemed it an act worthy of reward rather than punishment. This court acknowledges, as I suppose, the validity of the law of God. I see a book kissed here, which I suppose to be the Bible, or at least the New Testament. It teaches me further to remember them that are in bonds, as in bound with them. I endeavored to act up to that instruction. I say I am yet too young to understand that God is any respecter of persons. I believe that to have interfered as I have done, as I have always freely admitted I have done, in behalf of his despised poor, was not wrong, but right. Now, if it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice and mingle my blood further with the blood of my children and with the blood of millions in this slave country whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, I submit. So let it be done. Let me say one word further. I feel entirely satisfied with the treatment I have received on my trial. Considering all the circumstances, it has been more generous than I expected but I feel no consciousness of guilt. I have stated that from the first what was my intention and what was not. I never had any design against the life of any person, nor any disposition to commit treason or excite slaves to rebel or make any general insurrection. I never encouraged any man to do so, but always discouraged any idea of that kind. Let me say also a word in regard to the statements made by some of those connected with me. I heard it has been stated by some of them that I have induced them to join me. But the contrary is true. I do not say this to injure them, but as regretting their weakness. There is not one of them but joined me of his own accord, and the greater part of them at their own expense. A number of them I never saw, and never had a word of conversation with till the day they came to me. And that was for the purpose I have stated. Now I have done. This stunned everyone in the courtroom. It was noted that complete silence ensued before the punishment of death by hanging was doled out and his fate sealed. Another month would go by before his execution took place. During this time, more of his confidants that came to visit continued to attempt to convince him to escape, but he still refuses. It's a clear, mild morning on Friday, December 2nd, 1859, a day that would live in infamy for the abolitionist cause and the Brown family. 
John is escorted to the plank and walked over to the rope where it's then tied around his neck. When asked if he'd like to be warned when the trap door pulls out, he replies with a calm demeanor as always. I am ready at any time. Do not keep me waiting. He even commented earlier on the trek over that this is a beautiful country. After waiting more than 10 minutes, they dropped him and his final breath was recorded at 11.15 a.m. As his body was sent to North Elba, New York, his family began funeral arrangements and a simple and small procession was held for him. In the wake of his death, much literature and hymns were crafted to honor his legacy. One in particular, John Brown's body, would go on to be adapted by Julia Ward Howe into the Battle Hymn of the Republic, one of the most famous songs to come out of the Civil War and a major rallying cry for Union soldiers. Here it is to play you out. Thanks for listening to To Be a Rebel. This has been the last part in our three-part series on John Brown, the famous abolitionist icon that orchestrated the Potawatomi Massacre and led the raid on Harper's Ferry. Please let us know what you thought of the series by tweeting at me, at thepodfanatic, or emailing me, david at echofox.media, link in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you told your friends and family about it and gave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on all our new episodes covering all of history's rebels. Have an idea for a rebel you'd like to see covered? Email me, david, at echofox.media to have it considered. A quick note on dramatizations. We can't always know exactly what was said, but these depictions are based on historical research. Hosting and production is done by me, David Lose. Editing and sound design by Brianna Reese. Historical research for this episode was done by Dr. Paul Burrow. Links to all of our sources used and resources for further reading can be found in the show notes. We'll see you next week, and until then, take care. <laughs>